Welcome to Conversations with Big Rich. This is an interview style podcast. These interviewed are all involved in the off-road industry. Being involved like all of my guests are is a lifestyle, not just a job. I talk to past, present, and future legends, as well as business owners, employees, media, and land use warriors, men and women who have found their way into this exciting and addictive lifestyle we call off-road. We discuss their personal history, struggles, successes, and reboots. We dive into what drives them to stay active in off-road. We all hope to shed some light on how to find a path into this world that we live and love and call off-road. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. Have you seen Four Low Magazine yet? Four Low Magazine is a high-quality, well-written, four-wheel drive-focused magazine for the enthusiast market. If you still love the idea of a printed magazine, something to save and read at any time, Four Low is the magazine for you. Four Low cannot be found in stores, but you can have it delivered to your home or place of business. Visit fourlowmagazine.com to order your subscription today. On today's episode of Conversations, I have the pleasure of speaking with a guy that knew what he wanted to do from a young age. From going to drag races as a kid with his dad, then as an employee at Super Shops, to racing in NHRA events all across the country, off-roading in the Sierras for fun, to racing KOH. My guest is none other than Les Figueroa. Well, it's great to have you on the air today, Les. Um, I'm really looking forward to this interview. Um, How have you been? Rich, uh, thanks for having me. Been doing great. Uh, recently had a shoulder surgery, which kept me from being at King of the Hammers this year, which was a huge disappointment. Uh, we actually had an entry and couldn't make it. So oh. other than that, we're doing great. Well, that's too bad. I always hate to see an entry burned. So how's the, uh, how's the shoulder doing at this point? Shoulder's doing great. Uh, about three and a half weeks into it. Probably have another three weeks in a sling and uh, in physical therapy, you know, uh, first time having rotator cuff surgery, but it seems to be a pretty common thing these days. Right. That's true. Um, I should have mine done, but I don't know if I'm going to. I don't, I don't need to throw a football <laughs> or a baseball any longer and, uh, you know, pull-ups and uh, pressing heavy weights is kind of out of my wheelhouse anymore. So gotcha. <laughs> I'll get my knees there done first. <laughs> There you go. So let's uh, let's jump into this interview, um, and uh, let's find out where were you born and raised. Yeah, I was actually born and raised in Northern California, uh, Alameda, California, to be exact, and I uh, grew up there, uh, and ended up leaving there at about fourteen years old, and and moving up to the Sierras, and um, and yeah, that's where I spent my time going to the drag races as a young kid. And uh, just enjoying and doing the normal things you do growing up. And Alameda was, uh, did that mean one of your parents was in the Navy or anything? No, okay. uh, both parents were, were raised in Alameda, Oakland area. And uh, none of them were, were in the military, but my dad worked for the company that would work on all the ships. Okay. And uh, it's called Crowley Maritime. They own the red and white fleet there in San Francisco. So as a kid, I got to go on lots of ships and submarines and aircraft carriers as a non-military person. It was it was very unique. Right. I, I'm always fascinated um, getting a chance to, to be on ships. One of my favorite is down in Corpus Christi area, and it's the Lexington. And I just oh, yeah. love the aircraft carriers. And I realized that uh, y- you need to be... You can't be a huge stature, and especially in a submarine. And then uh, sure. you you got to be pretty nimble to get up and down those damn ladders and stairs. <laughs> well, you wouldn't be able to do it with that rotator cuff issue, Rich. I can tell you that. There you go. There you go. Or uh, overweight like I am with bad knees. <laughs> oh, you can change that. Yeah. So let's uh, – you, you said you, you got – you were – 
going to drag races and stuff? Uh, did you was that down in uh, what drag races did you go to? Yeah, in the early years. Um, so I'm 59 years old. So um, Fremont, first grade, second grade. We lived in the Bay Area down in there, Fremont, Alameda, and Fremont Drag Strip yep. was the drag race of choice. It was close. And uh, just really enjoyed it. And I just have lots of memories as a little kid going to the events and just watching. My dad would race as a hobby once in a while. And uh, ironically, I still have that car that he bought in 1970. Wow. And um, it's almost finished. Again, it's a beautiful car. And uh, I will drive it to work every once in a while here. And uh, But I'll trailer it to our drag strip in Las Vegas just to bracket race and have fun. And it's a 1970 what? It's actually a 1963 and a half Falcon Futura hardtop, and it was a factory four-speed V8 car, which um, were very limited production, kind of a rare car, if you will, for nice. that time. Nice. That's awesome. My dad, yes. my dad drag raced um, some at Fremont, but mainly over. Um, at Half Moon Bay when they'd had the drag, when they used the, the airport over there for drag racing. And, uh, yeah, that was a place I never got to go there, but, uh, my dad talked about racing Half Moon Bay. Absolutely. Yeah. That was, uh, that was back in the day. My dad drag raced up until about 62 or 63, I think. Very cool. Yeah. I was, uh, it was, it, I can remember when it snowed in San Bruno and, he took the dragster or the the race car it wasn't a dragster it was a uh i don't know what what you would call it uh but anyway what i don't remember what class it was but they w- he went up and down um San Bruno Avenue and they're off of El Camino where all the businesses are at and uh or San Mateo Avenue whatever it's called right there and it was uh snowing out and they were just roasting the tires up and down the the main shopping street there. <laughs> yeah, that had to be pretty rare for it to snow in that area. Exactly. But, uh, yeah, very uncommon. So then, um, whatever other what other kind of activities did you do as a as a kid or family? Yeah, so back then we went camping a lot, um, camping, fishing, and uh, we never really had a four wheel drive. But I can remember seeing signs back in the woods that would be posted on trees four-wheel drive only. And uh, my dad would drive down a lot of those roads anyway. And there were times we had issues getting out, and I can remember just loading the back of the truck up with river rock just for weight in the back to get out. But we did lots of camping, lots of trout fishing mainly. Um, We would fish the rock wall in the Bay Area, saltwater fishing. But that's kind of what we did, you know, other than, bicycling and bicycle motocross and skateboards, you know, the normal kid stuff. Right. And you, uh, as a, as a student, so you did like high school up in the mountains, but you did like your early years down in the Bay area, Alameda. What kind of student were you? Yeah. So I was one of those students, um, that would get by in school with kind of a B average without having to study hard. <clears throat> and uh, hindsight probably wasn't a good idea, but I didn't really study real hard. Uh, I took the hard classes and passed, and, um, and it, it could have been better academically. And then when we moved up to the mountains, I was kind of ahead of the schooling up there. So my junior and senior year, I went to a small high school of about 385 people. And a lot of the classes that were offered at those levels, I had already taken. So it was, I'm not, it wasn't a breeze by any means, um, but I didn't apply myself too hard because I'd already been through all that. And, uh, and it worked out good. I didn't go to college after that. I did take some college courses, but I, you know, at a junior college, uh, but I did not go to college after that. But I played sports, uh, baseball, football. I did some track. Uh, I did pole vaulting when I was young. And then when we moved up to the mountains, I followed up with uh, playing football and baseball. Did a lot of snow skiing, and uh, that was our winter activity. And in the summertime, we'd just try to ride dirt bikes in the mountains. 
And when you say you moved up to the mountains, what, what town did you move up to? We moved up to an area up above Sonora, uh, more in the Twain Heart, Longbarn area, about 5,000 feet of elevation. You know, small populations, lots of small towns connected by Highway 108. Right. And um, really a fun place and really a very unique place. I'd like to go back and visit more. Uh, a lot, lot of activities to do up there. So did you ski then um, more like at uh, Bear Valley? No, I skied more at the Dodge Ridge area. Okay, Dodge Ridge. All right. Yep, yep. Dodge Ridge. Uh, had season passes up there. Uh, even worked up there right out, right out of school. Uh, really enjoyed that. At that time, you know, we'd work up there and you'd get discounts. But the biggest thing was you'd get a season pass for extremely cheap. And so it enabled you to ski and uh, and and make money as well. Right. Awesome. That's pretty cool. And then yeah. uh, how did you get into uh, how did you know? Well, let, let's let's do this. What was the first car that you had when you became a licensed driver? First car I had, uh, I adopted. Always wanted the Falcon. First of all, <laughs> always wanted that car. Unfortunately. Uh, parents went through a divorce around 73. My dad drove that car for about a year. And back then, that Falcon would run mid-12s, which wow. in the early 70s, you know, that, that was extremely quick. And mainly due to the um, the lightness of the car itself. He had built a 289. It still had a four-speed in it. So, um, you know, he drove that around for a year. And that's a car I always wanted, but I didn't get that. My first car was actually... A 1971 Ford Maverick, six-cylinder, three on the tree. And uh, before I graduated, my dad took it and uh, pulled the engine and transmission out of it, um, put a four-speed in it and a little Hypo 289, and I got the scatter shield and clutch out of the Falcon and the headers. But uh, And it was a fun car. It would run like I raced it at Fremont once, and um, only once, and it would go like 14 O's which was mainly due to the rear end gearing. But my first car was a 71 Ford Maverick. And I have to ask, because every Ford Maverick I think I can remember was green. Nope. Mine was, it looked white, but it was actually the lightest blue color you've ever seen, which everybody thought it was white. Okay. (laughs) Yep. Do you know what I mean by the green Mavericks? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yep. Very, very common. Right. And so, lightweight car also. So, when did you graduate high school? What year was that? Yeah, so I graduated from uh, in 1982 in the town of Tuolumne, California, which was a a very popular logging town uh, back in the day. So logging was huge, and uh, but I lived about 25 miles away, so it was always best to take the school bus, and that was a common thing back then Uh, in the wintertime. The bus drivers would chain up the buses and go through the snow and pick you up and, and unchain and get you to school. And, uh, yeah, I graduated in 1982. Okay. Okay. I was in 76, so I'm a little bit older than you are. Oh, yeah, there you go. And uh, I lived, uh, after college, I moved to, uh, well, I worked in San Francisco for a short time, and then about eight months or so, and then uh, moved up to Placerville. And... Uh, that's what I really call home is Placerville. So Placerville, one of my favorite elevations. Um, after high school, um, spent about a year in that Sonora, Twain Heart area. Uh, my mom had relatives, cousins that opened up a business in South Lake Tahoe. And so at 19, I moved to South Lake Tahoe and uh, worked for their business for about a year and a half. And uh, it would take uh, digital photos at that time on a, and on a three-axis mill. It actually would drill holes in acrylic, and you put a background up against it, and it looked like the photo in acrylic. And you got to remember, this was still in the, the early, mid-1980s, so technology wasn't even close to what it was today. Correct. Correct. Yep, I was a commercial photographer back then, and uh, it was... Uh, I, I decided to get out of the photography business when everything started going digital and yep. and everybody was getting away from film 
and I just didn't want to reinvest. I had so much money tied up in film at that point. I was just, I was kind of disgusted because digital, it made everybody that had a digital camera became an instant photographer because you could manipulate everything. uh, Oh yeah. On my mom's side of the family, uh, I think that my mom's side of the family actually kept Kodak in business for many decades. Nice. (laughs) They took so many photos and, uh, and yeah, that was a different time when everything went digital. It just, but it, it changed everything, didn't it? Yeah, it did. It did for me, but that's okay. I, I like where I'm at sure. now. <laughs> that's right. So then uh, you're working in Tahoe. Um, that's after high school. You're you're still skiing, I suppose. Um, what yeah. kind of work were you doing up there? Yeah, so when I worked for, it was called Tahoe's Incredible Machine, and it was a franchise. They had them in Hawaii and Pier 39 and, you know, places like that. And, uh, and I still continued to ski. So Tahoe being a very seasonal place for work, as you can imagine, um, I would take on a second job in the winter, work at the rental ski rental places because you could work half day and then go ski half day. So I skied a lot at Heavenly Valley. Uh, I lived in Lake Tahoe for uh, 16 years. Oh, wow. And, uh, Enjoyed a lot of skiing. Uh, shortly thereafter, I was uh, at Caesars Tahoe. I was a valet attendant, which those are some great years. That was last for about two years. And really enjoyed that position. Got to enjoy a lot of the Tahoe life, uh, daytime activity as, as well as the nighttime activity. Cool. And uh, how, did, uh, how did the racing career come about? Yeah, well, uh, very interesting. Um, I started thinking about life and thought, you know, I really should consider doing something that would that would be more uh, beneficial in, in my future. Uh, I did have a, a friend, close friend and roommate, and his family owned a, a new construction plumbing company. So what I did is I, I kept my position in the house in Lake Tahoe, which was a rental house, and and relocated down to Roseville, and I did some plumbing, new construction plumbing. From there, you know, I was always interested in the racing. Um, from there, I also had a position part-time and then the full-time at a, at a speed shop called Super Shops. Okay. After, after a couple of years in the plumbing and just a few months at Super Shops, I really decided to move back to Lake Tahoe. Super Shops offered me a position at Mallory Ignition, which was located in Carson City, Nevada, which was down the east side, northeast side of Lake Tahoe. So knowing that I always loved drag racing, I took on that position, making minimum wage, which at the time was about $4.25 an hour. (laughs) And I started commuting down the hill working at Mallory Ignition, and I was fortunate enough to get a position in what was called the Mag Room, which uh, stood for Magnetos. And at that time, Mallory was the only ignition company building Magnetos for Top Fuel, Top Fuel Funny Car, Alcohol Funny Car, Alcohol Dragsters. And uh, so I was there only for about three months, and I had the opportunity to fill in going to the races for another employee who got sick and couldn't make it. And that was in 1988. And from 1988 till the end of 1996, I only missed six events in that whole time frame. Wow. That's really good. Yep. So, uh, yeah, so I was traveling on the road, uh, traveling from the West Coast, starting at Pomona, California, all the way to Gainesville, Florida, up, up north, Washington State, Indianapolis. I mean, just the whole NHRA series. I loved it. Learned lots of of things from from the top people. I didn't, you know, I didn't start at the bottom. I just was thrown into the top. And uh, about after the first year for Mallory, they built a purpose-built 18-wheeler that had all of the test equipment for ignitions, parts washers, CD ignition testing, electric fuel pump flow bench, magneto recharging. And they asked me if I wanted to be the one to drive it around the country. So at that time, I think I was about 22, 23. 
just an amazing position. I was still making uh, very little money, but but the experience was well worth it. A uh, couple of years into that, I decided I too wanted to race, even though I had only done it briefly at a Wednesday night, Friday night local level. Um, I just wanted to do that. And at that time, Mallory did not want to lose me from traveling. So they offered to carry my race car in the 18-wheeler. And so all the events that I was able to work at, I was also able to race at. And just an unbelievable opportunity. And with the rules that they had then, I was able to race the NHRA national events that were televised with a letter of intent that I would support the sportsman races at the same time. And so that uh, my cars in the early years were sponsored by Super Shops. They were the popular yellow painted vehicles. They had them in several classes. I just happened to be one of the fortunate people to, to get to do that. Wow, that's pretty good. That's, that's, uh, that's being at the right place and, and uh, you know, Right place, right time, all that, it sounds like. Yeah, and it uh, it was funny because the people on the West Coast thought I was an East Coast racer. The people on the East Coast thought I was a West Coast racer, and I never told anybody that I was new. And um, I just had a new friends from being out there, and I studied the sport, and I studied what you were supposed to do and and tried to study what you weren't supposed to do. And I was... I was honestly very fortunate to have early success and I won a lot of races right off the bat and I got a lot of write-ups and nobody had known at that time that I was new to the sport. They just assumed that I had been racing many, many years like everybody else. So it was kind of funny. It was my secret. Nice. And were you, were you still in the Maverick at that point? I'm sorry, say it again? Were you still in the Maverick? Oh, no. No, no, no. So the, the first car that I purchased as a real race car was actually a 1968 RSSS Camaro that uh, came from New Jersey. And it went from the dealership originally in 1968 right to a race car shop. And it was built for Pro Stock in 1969. So this group of about three guys had the car. It wasn't completed in time for Pro Stock which was a new class back then. And so the car went into what they called modified production, uh, which turned into NHRA competition eliminator. And it was raced all the way from 1969 till um, the mid-summer, September of 91, and I purchased it. And I'm looking at a picture of it right now on the wall, and uh, it was just a first-class race car, small-block powered, full-chassis car. It looked all stock factory, but the only thing that was original metal was the roof and the rear quarters. Everything was duplicated in fiberglass, but it was duplicated off original parts. So it still looked like an, an individual piece car. A uh, great race car. Raced that for two years before I went into the rear-engine dragster race cars. Wow. Okay. And... uh was that uh, was that like what what we used to call like a shaker body? No, it's a little bit different. Uh, okay. It had opening and closing doors. Awesome. Uh, lift off hood, lift off front end if you wanted. Uh, in the sportsman classes, at the NHRA level, you could race uh, 1090 index class, 990 index class, or an 890 index class. And it was a they are all drivers classes it, because it was on a fixed index. So really, the person with the most money that could get there the quickest wasn't the winner because you had to compete on an index. So leaving the starting line as close to perfect as possible and getting to the other end and beating your opponent and getting there first without breaking out and running under the index was the name of the game. So very precision at both ends, and your car had to repeat at that time within a hundredth of two of a perfect run to win. So it's still like that today. And uh, it's even more competitive today because of all the electronics that are available and the quality of builds and components that are available. So yeah, it's uh, still highly contested 
categories. Okay. And then you, you said you went into rear engine dragsters. Yeah, so um, I think it was at the end of 1992. I thought that's where I needed to be. Didn't really change a whole lot. I probably, in hindsight, should have kept a Camaro. But, yeah, I went into the dragsters, and uh, that competed on an 890 index. And uh, I would race NHRA at the events that we were at. And when it was time for all the other employees to fly home, I was still in my 20s, they gave me and my buddy Mike Phillips the opportunity to either go home and then we would have to work at Mallory Ignition every day, or they allowed us to take this brand-new 18-wheeler that they put a elevator lift gate on the back just to haul the dragster. They would allow us to go attend any other race events that we wanted to, and uh, everything was paid for. I had to pay my own entry fees, but all of our hotels and fuel expense and, and food was all paid for, and we would go to the IHRA events, Super Chevy events, and other bracket drag racing events. And keep in mind, we were still promoting the company, and we were the only 18-wheeler to be able to travel around and do that. It was just very unique and very special. That sounds like a sweet gig. Yes, it was just incredible. We got, we ended up once, we, we left Seattle, Washington, and decided to go to Hamburg, New York for uh, a non-race event and ended up stopping at Mount Rushmore because we thought that would be unique, not knowing it was the 50th anniversary of Harley-Davidson. <laughs> so we had a lot of unique experiences on the road. Some I can't talk about. Right. <laughs> I think statute of limitations might be up now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, let's hope so. <laughs> I think we all have some of those situations somewhere in our closets. Oh, yeah. So in between all that, um, one of the other fortunate things I was able to do, I was, like I said, uh, in nine years I missed six events. And I think five or all six of those events, I actually worked at the Indy 500 month of May for Mallory Ignition. Oh, that's cool. And so I would go in there. Mallory had had a garage there at the Indy 500. Um, gosh, I don't even know when it started. They, uh, they were building ignitions for the Indy 500 cars from the, from the beginning. And uh, so I'd be there for the whole month of May. And, uh, they weren't doing too much at that time because it was all going to EFI and they had fuel management systems within the ignitions. But I would still do a lot of testing of ignitions, did a lot of sprint car magnetos and uh, things like that. So th that was a very unique experience as well. What was it like at Indy during that speed week? It was awesome. But like I said, I'd be there for the whole month. And uh, we stayed at the Speedway Motel. And uh, which is no longer there now at the brickyard. And two doors down was Mario Andretti's room. Next to him was Jeff Andretti's room. And it was very close-knit. Like, once you were in at that level, it was one big, huge family. Uh, really cool. So you'd show up at the Speedway. We had all rear back entrance into the garages. And you'd hang out there for the day. And afterwards, you could you were going to dinner with the people that 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 you met, and I mean, I have just really unique stories with Mario Andretti and Aldo as twin, and Jeff Andretti's grandfather, uh, which they called Red. I don't even know his real name. And and in the mornings, you'd go down to the hotel lobby. They had a they had a restaurant and all these round tables, and it was the who's who of IndyCar racing. And everybody was friends, and you would have breakfast there, and, and you would have dinner there most of the time, and they would all heckle each other <laughs> from table to table. And uh, I'll tell you what, there were times I would, I would take the long route away and not go by Mario Andretti's room just because his door was always open. He always had lots of fruit and alcohol, and you couldn't pass by his room without stopping because he would make you stop. And it was just, it was really fun and very unique, and I always looked forward to that. That's awesome. These are great stories. 
Yeah, fun times. I mean, one time I, we were there for the U.S. Nationals, which was a drag race event, the largest drag race event for NHRA, and it takes place over Labor Day weekend. And uh, I wanted to show some people uh, that were involved with Mallory at the time where our garage was at the Indy 500. So we had a, a Lincoln Town car, and you got to remember, you know, it, it was a long time ago. And so as I'm going the, the, over to the garage area, they made us take a detour because I think they were redoing. Uh, you'd drive under these tunnels, and you'd pop up on the infield. Well, I think they were resurfacing it. So they made us drive, we were the only car, across the track. And as I'm driving across the track between turns two and three, I thought to myself, I probably won't ever have an opportunity like this again. So I made a hard right, and we took off making laps around the Indy 500. <laughs> and, and, uh, and nobody stopped by you? By the time I got to the... Pardon? Did, did anybody try to stop you? They did. Okay. So by the time... We only went about 70 miles an hour, and all I wanted to do was drive across the start-finish line because it's about a three- to four-foot-wide strip of the original bricks, right? Uh, which was the reason why they called it the Brickyard. And so we went across the start-finish line. About that time, there was two security trucks with all their lights on trying to stop us, and all I could think of was the trouble I was going to get in. And at that time, we were staying on ground at the speed of my hotel. I did not stop. I dove into the infield. I have five other people in the car. It's a big Lincoln. And these white trucks are following us with their lights on, trying to stop us. And I knew the area pretty well. And so as I exited, and I forget which street it was, I think it was 16th Street, because those tunnels were still open, I happened to pick the opposite tunnel that another car went through. And I popped up on the other side. There was nobody in front of me. So we were able to leave without getting caught. But then I was worried about getting caught when we went back because I didn't know if they wrote down our license plates. So I proceeded to go to uh, the shopping mall that was down the road, and I removed the license plates off the car <laughs> so that when we went back, they wouldn't know which car it was. Later on in the weekend, when the general manager flew in, he rented a minivan, and I switched cars with him. And later on that weekend, he got pulled over for no license plates. And when he opened up the glove box to get the registration and the rental agreement out, the license plate was inside. And later on, he said he mumbled to himself uh, something about my name and knew that it was attached to what was going on. <laughs> and uh, needless to say, I never got in trouble, never got caught for that. But it was a it was a fun experience. That is awesome. So you got to you got to drive on the brickyard. That's awesome. That's oh cool. yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, good times. So then um, you, you, that was one of the five or six events you didn't make in over that time period? Yeah, so uh, when I would miss the drag race events, um, that was a month of May. Usually it was like a Bristol, Bristol, Tennessee race. And um, I forget other ones were in May. It would probably only be a, a couple, but I would be working the Indy 500 at that time. And... Uh, so I was on the road. There was one time in nine months, like I say, I only went home four times in nine months. Wow. And it was just an opportunity to travel and, and see the country and just race. You know, I was racing 30 to 35 weeks a year. And I, I take it you were single at that point. I was single. I did not get married uh, to my current wife, Sue, uh, until 07. Okay. So I started traveling in 88 and uh, did not get married till 07. So late bloomer as far as marriage goes. I don't know. It kind of fit my time schedule, actually. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> That's perfect. So then, yeah. how did you how did you end up in off road? Well, I ended up in off road um, through. I always liked four wheeling. So in Ta when I lived in Lake Tahoe, we'd go on the Rubicon Trail and lots of cool trails around the Tahoe area. And we would do it in the snow. We would do it in the summer. It was just a lot of fun and always enjoyed it. Had a, at one time I had a, a 74 Blazer and it had a big block 427 Corvette engine in it and had lots of fun with that. But through drag racing, I was able to have a good relationship with Lucas Oil. 
and we would uh, our our company that we have now is named Fig Speed, and Fig Speed would represent Lucas Oil at the national events on the West Coast for them. So we established this relationship. At that time, I was living in Lake Havasu, and uh, Rick Mooneyham was living in Lake Havasu, and we did a lot of of rock crawling and and desert four-wheeling there. And when King of the Hammers started, um, it was almost like how I got involved in drag racing. I just, I saw it, I liked it, kind of wanted to do it, uh, bought a car. This would have been 2010, uh, no, 2009. And I wanted to get involved in the off-road because it was getting difficult for me to continue drag racing because all the big events that were good to drag race at, I was having to work at. And so it kind of, it kind of limited me to what I really liked. So by getting involved in off-roading, the time schedules didn't conflict. And so uh, I was able to secure a mild sponsorship, Lucas Oil, and then I got involved. Um, initially, I just got involved in racing King of the Hammers in 2010. And once again, had no idea, didn't know, just kind of, that's where I started, kind of like starting in drag racing, you know. Uh, nobody knew nobody knew I hadn't done it before. So that's what got me involved is just lack of conflict of scheduling and I was able to go off road racing and um without it interfering. And your the first car you raced was that one of Mooneyham's cars? No, I bought one out of uh Colorado and uh I forget the name of the company actually, the the chassis. Um I forget the name of it, but I went out there bought it. And uh had an LS in it, you know, it was pretty standard at the time for, for what it was. It had these big King air shocks that were, they did, I guess they didn't produce a whole lot of them, but uh, it had those shocks on there. And, and then I had Rick Mooneyham, he was real close to our shop, so he updated and, and did the things that, that he thought it needed. And uh, my co-driver, when I first started, uh, was Joe Thompson okay. from UFO Chassis. So Joe Thompson and I raced uh, KOH for four years. I didn't. And I, I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah, and uh, Joe. After that first year, Joe would take care of the car and make all the changes. And and obviously, because of what he does now, he had just great ideas. And um, after two years of that, we decided to build a new car. And uh, and Joe got started on a new chassis. And we ended up racing that first car again a third year because we couldn't get the other car done. And uh, after I was done with that, I sold that car to Gomez Brothers. And they had not off-road raced yet. They came out, knew I had the car for sale. They did not know Joe Thompson. They bought that car. And and then Joe Thompson, shortly thereafter, I kind of introduced them to each other and just shared phone numbers and Joe Thompson started helping out with them, and then one thing led to another, and and here we are. Won King of the Hammers three years in a row, and Joe Thompson cars are just really kicking butt. Yeah, absolutely. I was at uh, the first race that the Gomez's did, um, helping. I'm uh, really good friends with uh, Bob Rogie, and uh, oh, yeah. we uh, we ended up down there in uh, outside of Albuquerque, and. Uh, for the first race that they did that was uh, a combined race with the Desert Racing Association down there and um, Dave Cole. And so it was uh, it was quite the interesting event down there. And uh, those guys are fun to, fun to hang out with. Oh, yeah, they're a wild group. And uh, when they bought that car, two of the brothers, I think uh, JP and Raul, I guess it was, came out with Bob Rogie. And uh, we went out and tested the car, and they immediately bought it. And, um, yeah, I'm sure that was the car that they were racing at back then. Right. It must have been. Yeah, I remember yeah. when talking to Bob, he was like, yeah, these guys, want they want to go out and go trophy truck dry- racing. And I said, <laughs> "I," and he goes, and I told him they need to get started with something, you know, a little bo- more, you know, obtainable. And so, the, you know, we'll get them into the Ultra 4 racing. and uh, Or what then, you know, King of the Hammers. So that kind of style. And uh, now look at, they're, they're racing both. Yeah, now they're, they're racing all the above and plenty of, of equipment. And 
a really stout team and, and just great cars. And uh, they give it their all, you know. They're, they play as hard as they, as much as they like to have fun, they play hard both ways. And they really earned it and did a, did a great job. Absolutely. And so when you uh, when you wheeling back there, some of those, you know, you set up in the, the area of, you know, the Rubicon and Tahoe. Um, did you ever do Barrett Lake Trail? No, I never did. Um, we just did what was really extremely close. You know, we didn't, I didn't probably didn't even know about that trail. Didn't even know about, uh, what was called the Fordyce trail either. You know, we just, the Rubicon was iconic and it was right in our backyard. You know, we just would, we'd go in backwards or we'd go down highway 50 and go in ice house road, or we would drop in through Wright's Lake. That was another popular way we'd go in that way. And, um, or we'd go over Strawberry and end up over at Caples Lake and do a couple of days with camping and swimming and fishing and just, and what was cool back then is nothing ever broke. <laughs> you know, we never really broke anything. So I don't know what we would have done if we would have broke parts out on the trail, but uh, always a good time. Yeah, I can remember that as well. Um, back then I was driving a 86 Chevy one ton short bed. So I, I get it. <laughs> yeah. That's uh that's pretty cool. So then um, yeah. you're still, are you still drag racing? Yeah, I still drag raced all the way through, um, well, not right now, as far as drag racing goes, I try to do it. I have a dragster, uh, that Falcon that I was talking about that my dad bought in the early years. I have it almost complete and uh, probably took me another week to finish it. And then I just, fortunately, being in Las Vegas in the Henderson area, the drag the drag strip's only half an hour away, so I just do it now for fun and uh, enjoyment. I'm not I still travel to lots of events, and uh, but I'm not racing like I used to. So what I did all those years working for Mallory is I would go to the events, and other guys would fly in, and I would race, and we would service all of the race cars, and when they would allow me and my partner, Mike Phillips, to go to these other events in between, we saw a need for somebody to support the sportsman racer. So I always thought when I would leave Mallory that I would try to create a program that I would be doing the same thing for multiple companies going to those events to support the sportsman racers with products and technical services. So... At the end of 96, I had the opportunity to drive a top alcohol dragster for a gentleman named Jerry Darien. And at that time, he had been close to the family that owned In-N-Out Burger. So he was getting that sponsorship for the, the first time that In-N-Out Burger had sponsored anything. So I was going to stay in the industry with Mallory for that, for that opportunity because that, that would uh, allow me to race that class. After we went testing and uh, everything went pretty well, I got kicked out for one of the Pedragon brothers who their family is synonymous with drag racing and has been since the 60s. Absolutely. The only thing is, nobody ever told me I was kicked out. I had to read it in National Dragster myself. So when that happened, I decided to actually start the business that I have now. At that time, it was called Figueroa Motorsports because I couldn't come up with a name. And I put together a trailer program and enlisted the top companies who I knew the owners of within our industry. And my plan was to represent them at the sportsman events and bring their products and services to those events to support the sportsman racers. Because honestly, at that time, they were the only ones buying parts at the drag strip because the pros had lots of sponsorships. And, uh, and a lot of the companies didn't charge either the racers or full price for those. So it really wasn't a huge moneymaker for them at the time. So I had that idea, put that together, and I was still drag racing and traveling the country all over at that time. Uh, I would cross the United States three or four times a year. And, and it worked out pretty well. Um, I later changed the name to Fig Speed, one word. And, um, and now I just stick to the West Coast events because there's plenty of events for us to attend, and we still provide that service. 
Uh, I attend about 18 events a year, most of it all drag race events, but about three or four off-road events. Um, in 2023, that was the first time we went to Trail Hero as a vendor. Really liked it. Great atmosphere. And living where we live, all of these events are close. Right. So it's really been fantastic. Yeah, Trail Hero. Um, I have to give kudos for my son for uh, for building that event up to what it has become. He's he's done an outstanding job with that. Yeah, and I share our you know our experiences with all of our vendors. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the owners of these companies are either the companies are selling because the, the original owners are kind of aging out, if you will. And so I'm doing my best to keep the new blood, if you will, within the industry up to date. So I try to do small reports after these events because they have no idea. They, they've never been to those events, and a lot of them have never been to the, any of the events. They just happen to be in the positions that they're at. Um, one of the, the good events that I attended that I shared with was the Bonneville, uh, Bonneville events in, in August. I've only been there a couple of times, but just a great experience if you're into motorsports as a whole. It doesn't matter if you're into sprint cars, drag racing, rock crawling, whatever you're into. Um, that Bonneville is just very unique, and it has something for everyone. I'd like to make it to Bonneville someday. That was uh, That's always been something that's intrigued me, and uh, I hope to do that. I hope I hope to get out there for for their speed week and and watch some of the racing out there. Yeah, you need to put it on your list because the salt, you know, it's not in great shape, and they're not going to be able to uh, continue that forever because it, you know, it kind of deteriorates. And um, so, if you ever get that opportunity, you gotta make sure and put it on your list. Yeah, get it done soon. Right. That's right. So, what's in the future? Still going to continue doing the, the programs you have, or is there something else yeah. in the wind that you want to want to so, try? Um, yeah, I really enjoy You know, we have a brick-and-mortar speed shop here in Henderson, and uh, we've been here about 15 years. And I really, part of this that keeps me going is I, I truly enjoy helping racers and, and non-racers alike within our industry. I just, I've been fortunate to have a condensed education that that I don't know if I have ever would have been able to have had I not been in a position that I was, you know, the learning curve on all the different products. And um, I ended up, uh, you know, I, was race, I raced the Hammers type events for four years and uh, had to stop that because it was conflicting with all the events I had to do for other companies as well. But recently, uh, my buddy Jack Sadler and I purchased a 4500 car. And uh, we raced the Lake Havasu event in 2023, really liked it. We were underpowered, great car, really good car, and, um, but it had original V6 in it, you know. So we've since yanked all that out, bought a high horsepower 415-inch LS engine for it. And uh, we were entered in King of the Hammers this year. And ironically, with my shoulder surgery, he always tries to beat me out on things, so... What he decided to do was hurt his shoulder three weeks before I hurt mine. <laughs> so he, too, had to have shoulder surgery. So we were unable to make it. But we plan on, so for the future, we plan on hitting some of the uh, desert races, you know, whenever we can, because there's a lot of uh, here locally. We'll take it to Trail Hero and just have a, a good time with it and then work, work in the afternoon and the evening. We'll race Lake Havasu again and... Um, and hopefully we'll be in good shape for King of the Hammers for 2025. But we just want to stick with the same program we got going and just add some more off-road events. I, I truly enjoy it. And uh, it's a good group of people. It's a great group of people. Love being around the whole, the whole program. And uh, that's what we're going to add for the near future. Excellent. Let's, let's talk about, about your, uh, your wife. You said you met her um, in the what yeah i met my wife in lake havasu uh when i was in lake tahoe with this business it wasn't really a business i could do successfully in that location 
um, you know, with the wintertime conditions and all that. So I'd happened to go on a short vacation in March to Lake Havasu, never knowing what that was about. Going there, everybody's garage was bigger than their house. <laughs> it was very affordable. The motorsports, whether it be street rods, hot rods, dirt bikes, sand cars, boats, it's huge. It's uh, Lake Havasu is regarded as the the highest level of motorsports in the country. It has a, a, a most hot rods per capita than anywhere in the country. And, and I saw it once there, and I thought, oh, my gosh, this is kind of where I need to be. So I went back, uh, found a lot to purchase to build a house on. It was extremely affordable at that time. But I had to get a loan. So I got set up, went into this bank, and, and met this loan officer. Her name is was Sue. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this you know, beautiful person, uh, great personality. And um, I didn't know anything about her. But anyway, so I met her, got my loan. About two years later, with no contact, after living there, interest rates dropped, you know, down pretty far. This would have been probably around uh, 2002, I guess. And when the interest rates dropped to around five and three quarter, I decided to refinance. So I went back into that same bank, and lo and behold, Sue was still there. And one thing led to another, and uh, we've kind of been inseparable since then. We got I, we started dating and. And probably around 2001, 2002, we got married in 2007. And um, 2010, we relocated to Henderson, Nevada, and everything is going great. She's a wonderful person. Excellent. She, she actually works for our business and all of the paperwork, and uh, she does have an office here, but she works mainly from home. Very good. Very cool. Excellent. And, and so she, she says that she likes the the racing, and she does. But uh, I don't know if she likes it as much as me. And honestly, I don't know if there is anybody that likes all this as much as me. But she puts up with it, and uh, I'm very thankful for that. Well, that's important, you know. I mean, supporting each other um, with ever, you know, whatever anybody each, you know, each partner wants to do is great. What are her interests? Um, her interests are. Uh, we, I have two stepsons, uh, Ryan and Randy, and uh, obviously family with her. And we now have two grandchildren, um, Russell and Roy, and uh, our one son, Randy. He lives here locally in the Las Vegas area, Henderson. And Ryan, he lives in Southern California. He's actually a director, uh, commercials, um, just a lot of different things, um, you know, video um, stuff for bands and commercials and, and just lots of, lots of good things. But her focus is really family, grandkids. Uh, we have a golden doodle dog that just doesn't leave her side for anything. And so she's pretty full with that and, uh, just enjoying life and, and, and family. And she likes to wreck wheel. She does. As long as quote, I don't go on any darn goat trails. She doesn't like to go up the sides of mountains on goat trails. She just <laughs> likes to recreational wheel. Uh, <laughs> I get that. When I was uh, when we were doing dirt riot, I'd take Shelly, my wife, out onto the race courses, um, typically after the races, and you know, sure. to pick up all the markers and everything like that. And and she does a lot. She did a lot of off roading from the passenger seat, but. Uh, one time I got her in when we were Texas at one of the race courses. I said, hey, why don't you drive the race course? And she was like, okay. So she jumped in the driver's seat. We were at what the, what was the start line. And it, it you went about 50 feet, and then you made a hard left and down a, down a pretty good ledge that had a big crack line in the middle of it. And she drove off that thing, you know, and, and it, I mean, it, she didn't have – she didn't know what to fear, and right. when the drivers all looked at that start line, especially the sportsman classes, they were like, "Oh man, you know that's that's a pretty good drop off going, you know, down into this quarry bit bottom." And uh, she just drove off that like a champ, you know, not knowing that <laughs> that she should have been worried a little bit. I was a little concerned because she was going 
a fairly good clip. And then uh, we started across the the floor of the uh, of the um, quarry, and most of the, you know it was just all big rock flat ground, but there was all these like bowling ball size rock that had been moved around, and it was pretty clear down the middle. But she uh, she got to near the end of the quarry where you go back out into the trees, and I had her stop, and I said, okay, first of all. We're just driving the race course. We're not racing the race course. <laughs> and you don't have to hit all the rocks. Right. And she goes, what do you mean? I was hitting the rocks? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I love her dearly, but she was looking like, I don't know where she was looking. And I said, you know, you got you to gotta concentrate what's in front of you. And, you know, if you hit those rocks all the time, eventually something's going to break. So, you know, you can you can go a little left, a little right, you know, work your way over and around the rocks instead of just right over the top of them. And yeah. uh, she drove the race course, the rest of the race course, and did really well. So um, That's awesome. Yeah, once yeah, she slowed I was, down. <laughs> well, I started taking my, my wife, Sue, to the, to the drag races here. She would travel with me sometimes and fly in, but... Um, when I would take her to some of the races, she would comment on how easy it looked. You know, and I and I had some fast dragsters. Uh, myself and John Spar, his family owned B and M at the time. Uh, his dad was a founder of B and M until they in the fifties, and then they sold it no fun. But um, we were the only two cars that had superchargers in the country because we were wanting to promote the B and M superchargers. So I continued with that, and now lo and behold, it's it's extremely popular. But my wife would would make comment on how easy it looked. And I said, if it's so easy, maybe you should try it. And so she goes, well, maybe I should. So I built her a brand new dragster, a limited power, had a small block on alcohol. It would run um, high seven second, low eight, eight flat quarter mile. And I got it all tested and all built for her. And we went up to Vegas and her burnouts were perfect. And she could run the eighth mile perfect, but she would run faster mile an hour in the eighth than she would in the quarter. She did not like holding the throttle down all the way through the quarter mile. So that didn't last too long. <laughs> so then uh, this one time we were, so I got rid of that car and, and uh, to the people that we knew. And we were on the Rubicon Trail once, and we were, we were just starting to go into Little Sluice. And I had a built Jeep, and uh, I was probably towards the back. And so I went up to spot some people through it and kind of got tied up, you know, and, you know, as you do leading through all that and, and a little bit beyond. And when I went back to get the Jeep, she had actually hopped in it and people spotted her through there. And, uh, she really didn't have any off-road experience, but with the spotter, she was able to drive right through it and really liked it. And, and so from then on, we would do some of the, the, the easier trails, if you will, in the Lake Havasu area. She would drive once in a while. I really liked it, but she kind of got out of it after that. Very good. Awesome. But not knowing what to expect, you know, they don't know any better. They just do it. Right. Yeah, they, exactly. Exactly. Yep. Well, Les, I want to say thank you so much for spending the time and talking about your life and your activities and, and your passion. Um, I can really tell you have that passion for, for racing, whether it's uh, pavement or, or off-road. And, you know, it's, uh, it's great to hear that. that. That passion is why most of us continue to do this. Absolutely. And I, I thank you for the opportunity. And uh, if you're ever out there at the races and you see a white JK with a big Fig Speed logo on the side, stop. make sure you stop by and say hello. Absolutely. And... Uh, my next time through Vegas, maybe I'll even stop through in Henderson and say hello if you're there. Uh, please do. All right. Les, thank you so much, and uh, I'll let you know before this uh, episode's going to air. That sounds great. Thanks again. I'll see you at the events. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, that's another episode of Conversations with Big Rich. I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you could do us a favor and uh, leave us a review on any podcast service that you happen to be listening on, or send us an email or a text message or a Facebook message, and let me know uh, any ideas that you have, or if there's anybody that you have that you think would be a great guest, please forward the contact information to me so that we can uh, try to get them on. 
And always remember, live life to the fullest. Enjoying life is a must. Follow your dreams and live life with all the gusto you can. Thank you.